You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. This week's guest has an amazing story, a personal one about a flag that meant a lot to him and his family that he lost and then found. We will get to that coming up. Story I've wanted to tell here for a while. I'm excited to tell it. Before we get to that, our normal reminders here about following us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. As well, please uh, make sure that you guys subscribe to our YouTube channel. Give a thumbs up to all the content there. Watch the videos. We appreciate the love and support there as well. Make sure you guys remember about our promotion with Amazon. Uh, maybe you're doing some post-holiday shopping. Maybe you're just uh, you know, returning some items and want to pick something else up. Go to hazardground.com first. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. It'll redirect you to Amazon. You can do all your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend. Then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. As well, please continue to leave us Apple reviews, five stars, if you love the show. It doesn't have to be a lengthy review. Tell us why you love the show, and we'll certainly repost those on social media as we get them in. And we appreciate you guys as well taking the time out uh, to support the show. All right, this week's guest, a former Marine who uh, left the Marine Corps as a sergeant, spent four and a half years in the Corps, had three deployments, all of them to Iraq. And his story involves a very personal one of a flag that he took with him to his deployment, lost the flag, and then found the flag, and then sent the flag out to deployments without himself, went on deployments without the flag, and somehow, just like every good soldier, the flag found its way back home to him. He is Chad Russell joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Chad, welcome. Great to talk to you. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be here. I uh, found your story on Task and Purpose. Uh, if you guys don't know Task and Purpose, an amazing, uh, amazing website. But, you know, when I read it, I'm sitting here going, I, I need to tell this. Like, this is incredible um, that, you know, you, you start this whole journey uh, with this flag that your grandfather gives you and, uh, and tells you, my grandson needs to have this flag. And all of a sudden, now you're carrying two burdens, you know, being a Marine, keeping your fellow Marines alive. And now i got to tote this flag with me everywhere I go and make sure it comes back. So uh, it, it's an incredible journey for you, the flag, and your family. We'll get to it coming up here in a minute. But uh, just uh, absolutely incredible. And I'm glad you decided to share that story. Because the Battle of Fallujah, where this all started for you, was one of the most pivotal battles in Marine Corps history and, and one of the most pivotal battles in the entire Iraq war. Uh, you know, we're, we're almost coming up on two decades removed from that. You know, uh, not how much of that battle sticks with you, but, you know, I mean, does it, it seem like 20 years has gone by that quickly? No, sometimes it seems like yesterday, you know, and uh, in Fallujah or al Fajr, Phantom Fury, whatever you want to call it, you know, was the largest engagement with enemy forces since way city Vietnam. So it is significant. I get chills when you say that. Yeah. It's, it's, um, cause we've told that story of way and what it meant to the entire Vietnam war and how pivotal it was and what it meant to the Marines. And it's just like, you put it in that same context. It's like, Oh God, there's a lot of crossover on it. I, you know, I was talking with my battalion sergeant major who, uh, Ed Sachs, who was, um, there with us in the streets, fighting with us alongside our Colonel, uh, Willie Buell. And, uh, you know, we were talking about some of the similarities, but yeah, it is it, when you put it in frame it in that context, um, it is very similar. 
in nature and and it's humbling absolutely back on it uh before fallujah before the flag uh you decided to become a marine how and why yeah, you know, I was a junior in high school or somewhere around a sophomore or junior when 9-11 happened. Um, I had some influencers in my life. I had an uncle that was in Vietnam in the Army infantry, so he was, you know, fighting the, or Charlie <laughs> flying in, and the Marines were out fighting on the coast in Vietnam. I had another uncle that was in the service, and uh, I also chose to join the NGROT. NJROTC in high school uh, and it was, yeah so their numbers boy were, were you hurting. misguided <laughs> I know it's terrible <laughs> right um I I didn't even think about joining it but there was a, a marine colonel who was a lieutenant in Vietnam who was running it and then a navy master chief that was in charge of it and they came and recruit they knew how to uh, recruit they came to a football practice one night and he had his alphas and this big you know chesty puller stack of ribbons on and I just thought it was so interesting and told, talked about discipline and all these things. And, and then his son was a young platoon commander, Casey, uh, leading Marines in the invasion of Iraq. So I started this dialogue with his son, writing him letters as they're moving ahead in the invasion. And, and uh, his son was writing me letters back. And I think I just kind of fell right into that. Uh, mold and then the recruiter know, knew how to push my buttons I was an aggressive kid I played you know the typical sports things like that and I just uh, it appealed to me the challenge of it you know not not nobody's giving me anything you know I have to earn I don't get a, a boot camp ribbon I get you know I can earn an EGA this type of mentality what did uh what did your parents say you know they were supportive uh they were obviously nervous because we were on a wartime footing almost immediately after 9-11. And then obviously the Iraq thing started bubbling to the surface in uh, 2003. So it's just, they, they were supportive all the way around, but they didn't, you know, push me one way or the other, which I'm thankful for. So uh, you get to boot camp. Was it everything that you had imagined? Did it fill all your wildest desires? It wasn't my favorite place to be, you know. I did, I, I did have those moments, like I think a lot of young Marines do, or young recruits. Rather, the, not a Marine. Oh yet. shit! What did I do? Totally, yeah. Like, what the fuck did I do? Um, anyways, you you get over that, and I just kind of embraced it and and gave it my best. And I actually did graduate Company Ironman Platoon One Thousand Forty Charlie Company. So you know, physical fitness was my thing and uh, I took it serious and, and uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a good experience. So uh, you graduate boot camp, um, you know, and you know, cause you're, you're a Marine and you're on a wartime footing, like you're heading to combat fairly quickly. Do you, do you, are you nervous about it? Do you start to feel like you know, again, that, that moment, oh, I made a bad decision. You made a bad decision because you're in the suck of boot camp. But then there's a bad decision of like, okay, I could go die. So where is your head mentally once you're graduating boot camp? Do you know where you're headed and how quickly you're going to deploy? You know, I, I don't know what it was with me. I know everybody joins for different reasons. Some guys join for college. Some guys yeah. join for, to get out of their situation at home. I, I'm a, a, a recipient of a great mom and dad who provided a great life for me. And, um, you know, so I was a fairly 
patriotic kid. My parents were apolitical in the house. They didn't push one agenda over the other, but they were naturally conservative people, uh, entrepreneurs, you know, worked hard, that kind of a thing. Um, but really, I just, I wanted to serve and, and having all those influencers, my uncles, um, Colonel Brock and Master Chief Terry uh, back in Bend, Oregon, in the NGROTC program and, and all that type of stuff. And then writing letters with Casey Brock as he's, you know, making this his way through uh, March 2003 and the invasion. That, those are the types of things I, like you mentioned earlier, who the hell knew we were going to be at war for 20 fucking years? Like, come on. I thought the, the best laid plans, Chad, the best laid plans. <laughs> I know. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I thought the war was going to be over. So I really wanted to get in there. I actually had a, it's interesting. I had a presidential security slot that I was going to do. And my recruiter called me. I was fishing in Alaska with my buddies, like that last hurrah before takeoff for the military. And he's like, Hey, I've got lots of infantry options. And I said, you know, put me in coach, let's go. So I really wanted to get in there and, and do something. Um, but, you know, it, as you start training, as you start going out to range 400, you start doing the CACs or they, I think they call it something else now, but you start doing these, these intense training evolutions. It starts dawning on you that, hey, I'm, I really am headed in, into harm's way until you, you know, four months later, I think it was gosh, I was only with the unit for four months. And then you step off that, that plane and 120 degrees hits your face and you're like, holy shit, you know, I'm not in freaking Bend, Oregon anymore. No, you know, yeah. and now everyone's trying to kill me, even the elements. Yeah. Uh, you'll, I'll, you'll never forget that. And when that plane door opens on the, on the tarmac in Kuwait and you're like, and it just sort of smacks you in the face of like, oh, but it's a dry heat. Oh, bite me. I mean, it, 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 it's enough to... <laughs> It's enough to, to, to make you realize you're not in Kansas anymore. Um, exactly. hundred percent. Yeah. And so, you know, time frame this for me. This is when, when you land in Kuwait or, you know, you, you go overseas year and month. July of 2004. Okay. So June, July. So right. summer. Um, yeah. So I, I had only been at the unit, gosh, you know, September of 03 boot camp, And then you're, you know, three months boot camp, and then SOI. And then I hit the fleet with three one, and then we were only there, you know, four months really training. My first night, I checked into the unit. They took me right out to the field. You know, it's like <laughs> it's crazy. the The unit had um, a huge turnover. A lot of guys got out, and they only had Sergeant Major Sachs only had two hundred one hundred ninety nine deployable Marines in three one. So that means he had, and you take about a thousand Marines in a battalion. So that means he had to make up about 800 men in this short period of time. Right. So I arrived from school of infantry in one of these huge boot drops. Uh, and we came in like three big waves. So a lot of young Marines deployed on that deployment, which I think is very significant. And thank God we had some senior Marines stick around that chose to extend because they were the ones that probably saved even more lives because of their experience. How much or how many conversations did you have with Marines who had deployed already with Marines who had had combat experience prior to getting there? What were the nature of those conversations? 
Yeah, you know, well, when you're a young Marine, you don't really have much of a say in anything. You're, right. You know, but you, I mean, you that. have to at least be curious about the the combat experience, okay. right? Yeah, yeah. And so you start having those conversations, and you know, a lot of those Marines that we looked up to had just gone through. Well, you know, three one even backing it up before, in my unit and uh, my company, they were the first unit and company to be attacked in the war on terror. So they were. It was um, Falaka Island. So after 9-11, and they were attacked at Falaka Island training off Kuwait, and one of the Marines was killed, and another one was wounded. And that was the platoon that I went to, you know. So these guys had some experience. And they they locate, close with, and killed those guys in, in this truck that came up and opened fire on them on the beach. And that's an that's a interesting story as well. But just those conversations, they they crossed the line of departure they were selected to be one of the first units to to go across in march of 03 and and so you know they talked about the combat and stuff but you know relatively speaking they didn't have a a significant amount of casualties they had some casualties and some things but it, it i don't know it, it all varied everybody's experience was completely different so all right um you you land there, you know. Do you have any idea that the Battle of Fallujah is going to happen, right? Because that happens in October. Is that when it was? Um, it was November. November. Okay, and it was in the fall. I just didn't remember exactly when. So, yeah, like, so, what is your mission when you get there? Are you even aware? Are you just do, doing clearing? Yeah. So they called it, I think, Sasso Stability Operations yeah. and Security <laughs> is what they were. Call- you know, winning hearts and minds. Yeah. This was you know, the listen, idea. There are so many guys wearing 06 rank who came up with these acronyms and these terms, coin, FID, SASO, you know. They got yeah, ribbons right. on their chest for it, for coming up with this holy shit idea. And in reality, on the ground, you're sitting there going, what the hell are they talking about? I think we had an idea to answer your question about there could be a, a, a bubbling point. I mean, Fallujah 1 happened, so we... yeah. We're aware of this when the contractors were hung from the bridge. Mm-hmm. Then President Bush had General Madison, the Marines, in. they went in halfway and pulled them back. So, I mean, we, we watched that. I think Colonel Buell and Sergeant Major Sachs had a better idea. They were probably in the loop more about what was being planned. And they were a part of the planning as well for the battle, for the second battle. Um, but I, I think we had an idea, but we weren't really sure. Um, we lost 20 Marines, I think, before Fallujah. So we did oh, wow. have some casualties uh, before Fallujah. What does that we do were, to you? Uh, you know, we had a, a fairly, in my company, we had a fairly low rate uh, of casualties before the battle. Um, but we started seeing these, you know, IEDs, small IEDs that you could actually survive back then because <laughs> we didn't have all the, it was one 155 or a couple on the side of the road. It wasn't, you know blowing up entire trucks yet that kind of thing yeah um so we we did have you know a one calderon was killed um i i was there on patrol that morning when we were at the ia compound and uh anyways it it really just kind of wires your brain the paradigm shifts in your your mind Mm -hmm. hey you know i'm i'm not invincible here i might feel like i am because you feel that way when you're 19, 20 years old. I'm 10 feet tall and bulletproof and nothing can touch me. But you learn fast that you are touchable. Yeah. You know? uh, for the record, I've never felt 10 feet tall. Uh, I'll never have that. <laughs> but uh, 
Invincibility <laughs> might be a different conversation. I, look, I mean, I, you know, I've said this you know before. What I, mean. I, I genuinely, yes, I do. I genuinely, you know, look, I experience fear. I don't, I'm not ashamed to say it. I think a lot of us did. Some people say they don't. Some people said they never thought about it. I, I'm oh, not, I did. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I was definitely scared. Okay, tell me about it. Yeah, I think especially um, realizing that we are fighting this guerrilla insurgency that can really just take you out um, and you maybe never see them. You know, like a lot of the Vietnam veterans that I spoke with, Colonel Brock, the NGROTC guy I was telling you about, you know, he, he only saw one enemy combat one time, you know. Um, we rarely knew who was good and bad, uh, depending on the village or what tribe they were in or, or whatever. But the IEDs, I think, scared me the most. <laughs> I wasn't yeah. necessarily scared of getting in a firefight, to be honest with you, even though there was a little bit of fear there. I would much rather have that go on than be driving down the road and just boom, you know. Yeah. So it, it just got to the point where you just have to de- develop enough courage to overcome your fear because everybody fears. Or you get, and, or, or you yeah. get anesthetized to it. You know, you just, you become totally. numb to it. It's, if you, if you live in that much fear on a routine basis, you'll drive yourself absolutely insane. Right. Yeah. And so your body is, I mean, you just learn to compartmentalize it and this, our, our bodies are amazing at keeping us uh, focused on the task at hand, especially when survival is the number one right. key, you know, and, and not that's only that, really what it amounts to. Certain things become routine. Like, you know, we talk about this all the time in, you know, AARs and, and, you know, you get complacent because you've done the same thing and nothing bad has happened so many times that, you know, some of that fear just kind of goes away naturally because, Hey, I've done this before. I've made this trip. I've been on this road. I know what this feels like. And you, you tend to sort of just, again, get numb to it, but you're also the routine helps you not be as scared. Absolutely. Yeah. You definitely fall back on your training and the routines and all that stuff. hundred percent. All right. So before um, you guys, start the, the, the battle of Fallujah here, uh, in November. It's my understanding before you deployed, you got the flag that we had mentioned before, right? Yes. So my, t- tell my me the origin of the flag and yeah. And, and how we, it ends up in your rucksack. Yeah. My grandfather who I named my son after Sonny, he, um, was a gun dealer is still kind of does it, but part-time anyways, he picked it up at a gun show somewhere he was at and he, you know, obviously knew that I joined the Marines and, and gave it to me, you know, and I don't really know the origin behind that. I just really appreciated it and love him to death. And, you know, it just meant a lot to me to have that and, and carry it with me, you know, as a patriotic kid from central Oregon. And what did, what did he say to you? He just said, Hey, you know, I, 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 I want you to have this and, you know, remember, you know, where you come from and what you're fighting for and all that, you know, so. And along with my grandson needs to have that flag. Yes, he did say that. Yeah, he's old school, you know. <laughs> so, it, it, I mean, when you hear that, it, are you just like, thanks, Pop, no pressure, man. Thanks. Yeah, really. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Um, I think it just added weight to what I was there to do which was really just my best i didn't understand the geopolitical nature of what i was doing at the time right and you know i 
I just felt this patriotic duty to defend the nation. I mean, I watched 9-11 like a lot of us did, and we can remember right where we were, and we can remember the people jumping out of the the buildings. And I mean, it's much like Vietnam, where it was a popular war when it started. People don't talk about Vietnam that way anymore. But if you roll back the tape, it was much like our war. It was a very popular war that we were engaged in in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And it kind of morphed into what it became. Um, But at the end of the day, for those of us that, that joined and and wanted to get in the action, we wanted to defend our country and our values and, and, and do something about it. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, so you remember packing the flag when you're first getting, putting all your stuff together, uh, you know, and, and putting in your rucksack as you fly over, when you get to your hooch or wherever you're bedding down, what do you do with the flag? Uh, we were at Abu Ghraib prison in like oh, a yeah. good, compound good within job. a, in a compound. Yeah. yeah. Most people know, know that we, yeah. we were actually uh, put there because I found out later on that my, my company commander wasn't very trustworthy. So <laughs> full disclosure that didn't make it in Patrick O'Donnell's book. Um, <laughs> but, uh, we were one, which is, uh, interesting. Um, but we, we were out there. That's where we were. I put it up in in uh, the cell that we were, we were operating in and around that area, but it was just up as a reminder. We would see it before patrols, when we'd come back, when we'd be cleaning our weapons, all that kind of stuff. And we were just high operational tempo um, out in that area, doing the, the, the stability and security operation type thing. We were helping train the, the Iraqi army compound and the Iraqi police station as well um, in Nasser Wasalam and then the little community outside, outside Abu Ghraib. Yeah, uh, good times over there. I was, was there a couple of times. I mean, I, you know, and I was in Iraq when all that stuff got exposed in 05. Yeah, we had no idea no, of any of that did. stuff. We were totally, like, separated no, know, Marines yeah. inside of an Army compound. Yeah, and, and it, um, it's a bigger base than people would give it credit for. And trust me, those prison, it's not like prisons you think of in America. They're small. <laughs> there's eight to ten cells, and that's it. And it's not like a large, you know, hardened, fast-built. It just it, – anyway – we don't need to relive that stuff. Um, yeah, no worries. Yeah, so, so that was the the flag was was just there as kind of a reminder before and, and we went into staging area before Fallujah. Was everybody like on board with it? Like, oh, hey, Chad, this is awesome. This is cool. Glad we have this kind of thing. You know, I I had mixed reviews. You know, that <laughs> you know the Marine Corps is made up of a lot of different people. I I um I have a pretty tight knit family. A lot of my brothers, they maybe didn't come from tight knit families or whatever. So they used to make fun of Chad Russell and his Brady Bunch family, you know, um, but apple pie and Americana, you know, but yeah. you know, I'm proud. I'm proud of that. That's Good. just my life and my be. family. No. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, but, but it was funny. Like, here's, here's the thing. Corporal bowling used to get kind of give me a hard time about it. Poking fun at me, mm-hmm. but then, when his peers weren't looking, he would be like, hey, Russell, take this camera and take a picture of me in front of your flag. So I have these like really cool pictures of him in front of the flag in my little cell in Abu Ghraib, you know, and it just t- told me a lot about where his heart was at. Um, and a lot of times these senior guys that are rough around the edges and he was a tough guy, big, tall, tough guy, you know, t- take no prisoners. I mean, he would take his chevrons off and beat some ass if he needed to. He was that kind of a guy, but he also had a very compassionate heart um, as well. So he was a really good leader, a good balanced, I would 
consider him a good balanced Marine, but we were just blessed with a lot of those types of men. The duality of Marines, God, Marines that actually have emotions. They're just, they're such a unique, such a unique bunch. All right. So you get the, the call that the invasion is going to start here. You guys are going into Fallujah. Um, what exactly are you told about what your mission is? What are you feeling? What are you thinking? And, and what's kind of the discussion around the platoon? Yeah, so they move us into a staging area. Um, 1-4 just got back from Najaf. They came and relieved us at the prison. I actually saw some guys that I went to SOI with, which was kind of cool. When they patrolled in, I remember that. That was pretty neat. And they were kind of doing a mini Fallujah in Najaf. But we moved into a staging area. And, you know, it was full-on... Logist, marine logistics uh, at work. You know, we we did terrain models, we did rehearsals, we had live fire ranges even before when when we didn't have buildings we could clear. We made lines and dirt and practice clearing houses. I mean, we were doing the full on thing. And um, I remember that the night before the invasion, um, I had the flag with me, and I kind of had it. We were actually told we're not. You don't hang up flags. You're not allowed to do that. We're not that we're not conquering Iraq. We're, you know, blah, blah, blah. But whatever. I mean, I didn't listen to that. I mean, at the end of the day, we're there sacrificing our blood and treasure. We know there's a high probability that a lot of us maybe aren't going to come out of there unscathed or even alive. And you know what? I just was like, I don't care. I, I've got this flag. It's got these values that mean so much to me. And I want to make a a statement, you know, if we do what they're asking us to do, which is carry out our mission, we were the main effort for the assault on the city and our casualties reflected that shit. We had 33 killed in action. Uh, We had, when we returned home, we had 468 purple hearts, which grew to 678 purple hearts. Wow. Um, And that's really significant. And you're talking about really within a 10-day period of time where most of that was taking place. Uh, So, but this is, you know, we're talking about before this even, that even came to fruition. And we're just excited, but nervous. And they're feeding us like, they fed us really well. The generals came in and gave us these rah-rah talks. And then we moved into position the night before we kind of snuck up behind the train station. Just out of curiosity, how does a low-level Marine take to a flag officer walking in to give you a rah-rah speech about, yeah, you're going to go into combat right now. You're probably going to die. But I'm here to tell you good luck. It was very surreal. It was very nerve wracking. I think that's when I really got nervous in my gut and my, 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 my stomach was sick to my stomach, especially when uh, our first sergeant, uh, first Sergeant Hertz, Sergeant Major Hertz now, was coming around and shaking our hands before we took off to, to get into position that evening um, because we, you know, snuck up behind the train station and blew those three causeways across the um, the train tracks, you know, which they, you know, obviously wouldn't expect. I was on the the Operation Black Bear earlier that year where we basically probed their defenses on the other side of the city just to see what they would do. Mm-hmm. It was a faint exercise. Um, so I kind of was a part of that small operation and got an opportunity to see that they were prepared for us. You know, as soon as we turned the corner at, on that Operation Black Bear, they were lo- they were lobbing mortars at us like crazy. 
and none, nobody dismounted. I think our sniper team dismounted that was with our track um, during that time. But man, I don't know. To answer your question, it was very nerve wracking. And I think that's when I first really got that pit in my stomach that I, I knew that the reason he was shaking our hands is because he knew that some of us would not be coming back home. Yeah. And we knew it too, you know, and that was, that was scary. Yeah, I mean, again, um, a, a lot of leaders do that. You know, it, it's moments you want to remember, right? It, it, it's mm-hmm. just, if I don't ever see this person again, it's it's the silent shake of the hand telling you, thank you, um, I love you, and, and you know, yeah. this is the last day that Absolutely. we're together, you know. And again, like it, it's nerve-wracking, it's scary, but it's just one of those things that's a bond, um, and, and it's a matter of respect. It's like, I'm not a first start anymore, you're not a corporal. You're not a private, private first class. It's man and man. I'm, I'm just with you, brother. Exactly. And, and, and that was a progression that I saw happen very quickly. And, and I think it's a reflection of how good the leaders, the senior Marines were. Yeah. They knew that they didn't have a lot of time to treat us like boots. In non-wartime, maybe you're treated with low-level respect for at least two years. But they didn't have that time to do that. They had to, hey, you're a Lance Corporal. He's a Lance Corporal. You're a senior Lance Corporal. But you know what? you two are going to have to rely on one another here in months. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be people trying to kill you, including the elements trying to kill you. And it's going to be you all relying on one another. And so I did see that progression happen really quickly. And that, that's a good place to be because then you feel like you're a part of the, the crew and you've earned their respect. Sure. You know what I mean? Now, before you guys move out to staging to go to that train track you talked about before, you mentioned Corporal Bowling, Corporal Theodore Bowling. Uh, comes to you before all this and asks you for the flag? Yeah, he did. It kind of threw me off a little bit. You know, um, I had taken those photos with him with the flat at Abu Ghraib, you know, and uh, he came to me and he was like, hey, do you still have that flag with you? I'm like, yep, I got it right here in my pack. And he's like, I, I want to hang that sucker up like on a mosque tomorrow when we when we do this thing, you know? And I was like, okay, Um I was reluctant, but he commanded a lot of our respect. Um, and I were you reluctant just, because yeah. of the reason he told you, or just because you didn't want to let it out of your sight, so to speak? Because it was personal. Yeah, that's what it was about for me. I didn't want to lose it. I knew how I felt about it, but I wasn't certain how the others felt about sure, it. Sure, right. Um, totally. You know. So I think that's part part of what it was because, but because I trusted him so much. And because I respected him so much, I just said, absolutely. All right. Um, in good hands. Yeah. So you get to the railroad tracks, okay? Um, you blow the causeways. Battle kicks off. What happens? What are you seeing initially? What we see initially was actually the first two rows of houses were supposed to be demolished when we did the, the walkthrough for, for our terrain model. But that didn't happen. They were standing. So we're like, okay, we're going to have to clear these two first rows. Air support was supposed to knock them down completely. Um, That didn't happen. We start clearing houses. And in the first few blocks, we, we take contact and we lose three Marines. Uh, um, Were they guys uh, you knew? Squad of Marines. They were. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Especially the guys from that came with me from SOI. Did did you Um, get names at that point in time? Or you just Marine down, Marine down kind of deal? Uh, Yabetta was on the PIR, the little, the fire team leaders had PIRs. So I had it in my ear and 
Um, I think he did maybe mention a name because he was on that on that side, so he could kind of see what was going on. But he came across. Um, he's a Native American from uh, Oregon out here, and uh, he had he was another guy that I respected dearly. He was a roommate of mine in a senior Marine. And when he said, Hey, we, we need to keep our shit tight. You know, we just lost three men. I knew we were, it was full on, you know, from that point on. And so then it was just really, it just started escalating from there. Lots of, uh, lots of pop shots, lots of automatic weapon fire, uh, lots of our rock rocket propelled grenades. Um, and you're talking, was, the volley is back and forth, right? They're coming at totally, you, you're going at them. Yeah. Like Hollywood kind of, you know, BS that you, but except you're actually living it. Yeah. And, you know, we did have obviously lots of support with us. So we did have some, some armor on the, on the deck, helping push back the, the first initial onslaught and everything, but they would hole up in houses. And so, you know, tanks really become irrelevant if they don't know where the threat is. Yeah. So then they draw you into this urban warfare and it really kind of evens the playing field uh, because we all have automatic weapons really um, or semi-automatic weapons and we're fighting house to house now, you know, but now we've got to deal with snipers Mm -hmm. and now we've got to deal with machine RPKs pointed at front doors and shit like this. As you're clearing houses, uh, how do, do you get a sense of how much time passes? You know, we were moving pretty damn fast and I just, I, my brain was not there. My focus was completely on what was in front of me, my fire team, the few guys that I had in my squad and us carrying out exactly what we were told to do kind of in our micro mission. And we each had that, you know, down to the last man and we knew what we were supposed to do and where we were supposed to get to. We did show up ahead of time. uh, But the downside of that in that city was that because we were clearing so quickly the enemy was pretty clever you know it was a siren call for international terrorism so we had all kinds of we even had chechens we were fighting you know <laughs> radical extremist chechens and squads of guys with with uh black hawk gear you know on so it's like we had all kinds of different um challenges in there but the point is, is that they would slip in behind us. We'd clear a block and then we'd start getting shot at from behind again. We'd have to go back clear. Um, and that created a lot of a danger for us. And we lost some men that way as well. You know, at the, at the end of each day, because this, the battle lasts, what, three or four days, correct? You know, it was a really solid eight days. Of was it eight? Was it? Okay. Yeah, it was more like eight days, but probably the intensity of it could probably be boiled into that amount of time or maybe a little bit more. Well, and the only reason I ask is because obviously, uh, if you know anything about insurgents, when it gets dark, they uh, they, they call it a day. Uh, you know, they, they punch a clock, most of them, and go home at night, um, you know, because it's a regular work day when you're an insurgent. You know, just Totally. To, well, yep. By the way, hey, Larry, you getting lunch? Yeah, me too. Uh, so anyway. Uh, <laughs> That's true. In this case, it's like, hey, Muhammad, you getting lunch? Yeah, anyway. Um, but that said, so, you know, you, you're, you're rearming and refitting at the end of the day, and you're taking stock of what's going on and, and, and the casualties. Um, does the emotion of any of this hit you at any point in time? It did, you know, and I, I don't know what it was inside of me, but I actually started journaling a little bit. I brought a pen and a pad of paper. I started writing some things down. I knew that what we were doing was significant. 
I, I kind of knew a little bit about history and so had an idea of what we were engaged in. And it was hard. It was hard to hear the names of the guys that I got to know in SOI and that were gone, you know, and, and good, good guys, good, soft-hearted, some of them, you know, aggressive, some of them inner city kids, some of them from the country, you know, and just the, the, the names that, that was hard. And uh, especially the ones that I knew, knew directly that that was really hard. Yeah, it was very, did, did you it feel like hard it was, to swallow. did you feel like it was breaking you? No, I, I, I didn't. Um, I didn't feel that way until bowling was killed. Okay. Uh, d- days later. Yeah. And I think it just rocked us, you know, because we knew that if they could get one of our very best, that w- any, any of us were fair game, you know, and it could happen to, you know, and he was, he was killed in action, taking the fight to the enemy. I mean, they had ran out of rounds on the rooftop. He had grabbed an AK 47 with a 200 round drum in a house. I mean, he was, he is a definitely a war dog. He where took were that you? AK and started shooting back at the enemy. And that's when he took a round in the throat. Where were you when he was killed? I was directly across the street. So I'd clear, went with my squad. We cleared this house. They punched across the street. Um, I believe we were near route Elizabeth actually. And they punched across to the street. And then there was a two lane highway and a multiple story house across the street, but it had insurgents on every level. And they were just waiting. They were using that buffer of those streets mm-hmm. to wait for bowling squad to punch to the roof where there was really no cover. And as soon as they got to the, the roof, they conducted a coordinated ambush from all three levels, rocket propelled grenades, um, rockets. I mean, AK um, RPK fire. It just erupted. It was crazy against one, one squad on top of a roof, you know, with small, short defilade. It was, it was a bad situation. They were running out of rounds. So we were running magazines up to them. We were trying to help them. And do you feel like you're getting overwhelmed at that point? Like as far as losing the initiative in the battle? Uh, maybe a little bit, it kind of stalls a little bit, uh, at that point for us, but we also had other tasks we had to do. Um, that particular day, there was a ice cream truck in this courtyard of the building that I was in and it was full of insurgent munitions. So they were using vehicles like this to move their um, supplies and we couldn't leave this truck there. So my platoon commander was like, Hey, who do we have available? They had my fire team. So they sent me and another fire team away from our platoon blocks away to go find EOD to come blow this truck up. So we didn't leave it there because we knew what was happening. The insurgents would slip through a courtyard going behind us. Mm-hmm. They knew where all their supply caches were, right? They had months to prepare after Fallujah one. So that was the other thing that we were up against. And we knew that the casualties, especially in the Jolan district, which was the most fortified area. So we were the main effort, main effort in Marine terms means that we're going to send one unit to break the back of the, of where the most fortified area of the enemy is. And that was the Jolan district. And our casualties reflected that. And so I got sent on this mission with another uh, fire team. We went and found EOD. That's when I saw Colonel Buell in the street and he was out there walking. You know, it's like something out of a movie, to be honest with you. He was 
so calm, cool, and collected. Uh, that was when I first ran into him in Sergeant Major and, hey, Marine, how's it going? And he's smoking a cigar in the street, you know, and, and he's just fucking directing traffic, you know, like no fear in this guy. And uh, it was just that emboldened me. I told him what was going on. He got us some additional help. We got back. But when I got back, that's when all, all the hell broke loose, really. So I kind of jumped ahead in the story. But when I got back, that's when I started hearing, hey, Bowling's hit, Corman up, you know, then Doc Coker's on him trying to save his life, which I found out later that he actually died immediately at the scene. But I thought he had a chance to survive, but it was because Doc was just showing the Marines. And I talked to Doc about this. And I said, you know, I never knew, you know, knew the real story here. And he's like, no, no, Chad, he was dead instantly. And he's like, I just wanted to show those other Marines that I, I would fight for them. I would do everything that I could for them and that I would work on them if something happened to them, you know, and that's what it was about for him. But he knew in his heart that he was gone. And so that gave me some peace later on because I never knew that, you know, that. <sighs> that's, that's so interesting um, to, to take that moment in war to sort of push the psychology of war for other Marines. Yeah, I mean, because it, it, what it sounds like to me, and again, correct me, the, the rate of casualties you were sustaining, it didn't look like there was a lot of time to spend on somebody who had already expired, that to, to make that effort just to show everybody else, and you're not talking about show other corpsmen, you're just saying show the other Marines who were still in the fight, that if you go down, someone's going to be there alongside of you to 100%. take care of percent That's what it was about for wow. for for yet for uh, doc coker and he was a tenured guy he had been in afghanistan uh before he got to us so he was really a salty corpsman but that was that's one of the things i'd like to highlight here too is the heroism from these navy corpsmen these docs of ours that i saw running i mean it, there would be times where they're yelling corpsman up behind us because a squad near us needs help and they're trying to run out in a street with gunfire and we're gra- like grabbing them and hold on wait we know you want to do it but they just threw caution to the wind and they were they were there they those guys did absolute yeoman's work they don't get enough credit and there was you know there's few of them and they train us up as squad medics and stuff to try to help out like when i was blown up by an rpg matt sandy went down i don't even know how i didn't get hit i just got knocked down but when I came to and grabbed my rifle in 203, he, he was bleeding very severe, severely from his leg and his trigger finger got blown off. And so I just, you know, grabbed his IFAC and did the best I could. But then there was Corman on him like that, right. you know, and they're dragging him off. So this was like the it was it was sustained high intensity urban combat uh, for for those eight days or whatever. Do you still talk to Doc Coker, Doc Coker at all? I do, you know, I got to see him um, at our at our 15-year reunion. We did a 15-year reunion for Fallujah in, uh, with, with uh, Lima Company in Texas in, on a private ranch, which was incredible. Uh, Warrior Reunion Foundation helped us put that on. Those guys are absolutely incredible. Uh, they're a group of Marines that deployed together, came back, did reunions, and, and started an organization that brings uh combat units back together and they helped us do that and uh it it was great to spend quality time with him and it helped me kind of reconnect with him but i lost contact with him for many many years and i always wondered about him because he he's one definitely one of my heroes 
because of what I saw him do and what I saw our other doc, Doc Anthony, which I don't even know where he is today. But that's another thing that I worry about these guys. You know, we, that's another statistic that I think it's important to talk about. Um, not since the Fallujah time period, but since the beginning of the war past even Afghanistan to present, we've now lost 35 Marines from 3-1. That's more than we lost in the city of Fallujah to, su- to suicides. Wow. Some, some of them other deaths, um, but most of those are suicides. And so, you know, that's, that's a tough pill to swallow. And, and a lot of these men are, were high functioning, good, high quality individuals, probably, you know, whatever their reasoning was for different reasons, or they weren't even themselves. But man, I mean, that's something that I've kind of taken as a task to reach out and try to build community and these reunions are really important to me. That's a, a huge thing for peer-to-peer healing. Um, but anyways, uh, it's all very heavy. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm sorry, brother. You know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's unfair. It's unfair that even after the war, we're still fighting the war uh, in a different manner. And um, It is, but you know what? There's hope. There's the... I, I, I tend to follow the line of what General Mattis talked about, this post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. And that's the vein that I like to talk about. Sure. Because it, there's, it, the, the easy thing to do is, is get stuck on the negative stuff in life. Mm-hmm. I mean, but there's so many positives. And, and even the, the honorable thing that those guys did during their life, um, I still struggle with how I feel about the, the choice that they, they made or like maybe it was you know, substance abuse related, and they weren't even themselves. So there's that too. But at the end of the day, it's like, they were a part of something great with us. They, they had a desire to, to, to do something bigger than themselves. And many of them showed up and were amazing Marines or fathers or dads or whatever. And so, you know, I'd like to, you know, they should still be honored for the good deeds that they did, did in their life. But sometimes we succumb to those things if we allow negativity to make us despondent, put us in a corner. And we've got to be cognizant of that and make sure that we don't alienate mental health as a stigma. It's not. Mental health needs to be a core part of our health, like physical health or any other piece. And they've done a lot of advancements in that in the military. It seems like they even have like a warrior a wounded warrior battalion, which didn't exist when I was in. Uh, so there's, there's just a lot of things that guys need to, to realize is that they have a, t- a ton of value. They just have to learn how to shift their context. If they need to get counseling, they need to do that. They need to prioritize it yeah. like their physical health. No, uh, that uh, was uh, the best thing that I ever did. A hundred percent. So bowling goes down. Um, at what point in time do you, think about the fact that oh wait he's got my flag not until later i mean not until way later actually when you say way later what do we talk like after the battle had ended and you guys had exfilled the city or no no i I would say not until we made it to the flower factory okay which is really near where the bridge where the bridge is that the contractors were home it's only a few blocks away on the river and uh it was just because the the intensity of everything was so high and the tempo. And then once we kind of rooted out the main 
insurgency, uh, we had to go back clear because there was still insurgents that were left and we still had, we're taking You're back. I'm back. Yes. Okay. Do you remember? Do you remember the last thing it froze? Yeah, I think we were talking about um, just where I was at with the, you know. I think you said uh, we had reached, and then you just sort of died. Yeah, I think we were talking about putting the flag out of mind until. We got to the the train station, really, and that's when I realized that it was where did it go? You know, when when somebody dies on the battlefield like that, they cart them off. You know, and I was there for that. They used he was such a big guy that they used um, the drapes in a in a room as a litter. Um, Lieutenant Eskul did. I was there, some of the other Marines that brought him down the stairs from that rooftop. And then um, Gunny Wilson was there, who actually was just stepped off as Sergeant Major of 1st Marine Division. He was just did that uh, tour. Um, but he was there and uh, taken our wounded and KIA away. But that's what it was. It was just kind of out of mind. And then, and then when it was on mind, it kind of just sat with me in a felt sick about it because I knew now the significance of this flag was so much greater, really. I mean, what steps can you take at that point in time to try and find it? I did everything I could, to be honest with you. Uh, I would even sneak away from my squad. uh, And one time I went and I went over to the battalion aid station and I was asking one of the the chiefs, the corpsmen. Actually took me over to this big Connex box and it was where all the KIA's gear was. And it was very somber and humbling because I'm digging through all this bloody gear now and I'm looking for his pack. And he's like, I think it's in there in the upper right hand side. And he didn't want anything to do with it, to be honest with you. But he let me in there. I got into his pack and looked and it wasn't there. And I'm like, shit, you know, where could this thing be? And I just I mean, did, kind of felt did like you, it was did you think Why would point. somebody take it out of his bag? Exactly. Yeah, I, I, I thought that was the most logical place it could be. But right. I just kind of put it out of mind at that point. It's like it probably was lost somewhere. Or who knows what he did with it? How much does that? flag start to overtake your sort of conscience right now like where is it where did it go i need to get it back kind of deal it made me feel guilty and sick to my stomach in which way like that, for what reasons though i think i think it just the significance of it like who who um corporal bowling was to me what we were there doing all the other guys that i knew that were wounded or k- killed in action 
the, what we had just been a part of, you know, started to sink in. Um, as we would do these patrols from the flower factory and kind of operate out of that area. And it wasn't until that day I was talking to Bowman, one of our machine gunners from Texas. And I was, I just, the thought popped into my head, like, Hey, do you remember what truck he was in? And he said, I think he was in that truck right there. Um, Cause he was in that truck as well. And that's when I found it. So, okay, well, hold on a second. You, you, you stumble back on this thing almost, you know, like, I mean, that's crazy that it was in the truck. Do you, I mean, do you, are you starting to think about why he took the flag out and left it in the truck or like what's going through your mind? Probably quick access uh, to have it right there. He was the A driver for that vehicle mm-hmm. as one of the leaders in the platoon and, uh, you know, when I went down there, I just like had this strong feeling like it probably could be there. I, it wasn't in his rucksack. Uh, so it's a strong possibility, but I don't know. It, you know, and I was nervous either way. And when I pulled that green armor back, that soft green armor, it was stuck in that hollow space in a trash bag in this like triangle. He had it like really protected in this uh, trash bag. And I verified it. I opened it up and man, I was like kind of blown away by it. I wasn't really sure. I just, it was a very powerful moment for me. So you get this thing in your possession. Um, Do you tell anybody about the whole thing? No, I just kind of kept it to myself. Why? I was still processing everything that we went through. Yeah. I think I, it was, it was a lot for me. I'm a, I'm a really empathetic guy. I, I can focus and be aggressive and, you know, put that combat hat on Mm -hmm. and do the violence of action thing like that. Sure. Uh, But I also am a very empathetic person. And I think it just really the, those experiences, those firsthand encounters, you know, running into Sean Stokes, that day and or and seeing the the hole and the breach of his m203 that mike hanks was shot that day you know uh those and you know uh sean is posthumous now he's silver star recipient he passed away on our last deployment just those experiences those vivid things that imprint on your brain so strong that you will never forget them, you know, washing blood out of helmets and things like this. Um, the, the smell of dead bodies and seeing animals feasting on <laughs> the faces of dead bodies and sleeping in buildings with dead bodies and then having to stand fire watch and just the hypervigilance of it all. I think it all just kind of like, I was still in survival mode and we all were a little bit salty at that point. Mm-hmm. because of our experiences and we were not taking our foot up, eye off the ball because like I said we were still having guys killed later into the month from holdout insurgents so we we knew we were not out of the woods and we were not taking our foot off the gas you get home from that deployment um with the flag yeah any yeah I mean look you're still a marine you know you're going back any desire to leave the flag back home again to say, look, I, you know, it survived. It's it. Corporal Bowling had it. I lost it. 
I don't want to chance it again because it already has so much weight to it. Mm -hmm. it, I mean, is there a part of you that's like, it's not worth it to bring it again? No, you know, I actually had the opposite feeling like it needed to come with us. Uh, And so when I got back from that tour, so many, we had, like I said, we had 468 purple hearts that's grown (laughs) to almost 700 after talking with Sergeant Major Saxon, getting some of this data. Um, And so I, our sniper platoon platoon during that deployment was almost completely wiped out from injuries or they were getting out of the service. And so they had to basically rebuild that platoon. So I took the NDOC and became a pig in the, in the platoon and did that for the rest of my time in the, in the, in, in the Marines with three one and operated and supported the companies and worked for the, the company commanders and I just, we hung it up at outposts that we were at mm-hmm. and at different forward operating bases. Were, and, were you more open to tell people the story of the flag and what had happened? So like people would sort of co-sign yeah. on putting it up and letting it be part of the experience? Yeah. As I built closer relationships, tight-knit relationships, with, mm-hmm. which I had the opportunity to in the sniper platoon, uh, it's just a different culture in there. It's more by a first name basis. Rank doesn't really matter. It's all about experience, right? And that kind of a thing. And as I, as I built these tight knit um, relationships, I started kind of revealing the story about it and, and it became uh, an important thing, I think for the guys that knew about it and it became more and more important as time went on and we would hang it up in the middle of kind of our main area because I wanted it to be where the, the main body was, was getting to see it. You know, we would hang it right. up in the middle of where birthing was. We were at Haditha dam we hung it up there. Um, we were operating in and around that area. Were, um, were people taking it out with them on missions again, or just hung? Um, it did just hang. It went on a few things. Not not when I was there. I mean, just because real estate was hard to come by, and when you're on a in a four man team and you're doing eight man or eight day missions in the yeah. desert, sometimes yeah. unoccupied, occupied houses, dirt holes. Food and water like, seem like a little bit higher priority than a flag. Yeah, 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 exactly. Maybe a so clean it, pair it, of underwear and clean socks. That's about it. But it, but it did go out with my friend, Kevin Hauser, who joined the Marines after me. He was an engineer. Um, I think he, they were stationed at Al-Assad air base and they were doing these, I think that those guys call them sapper missions where they go out and they, find IEDs and blow them up, right? Because they, there's just a lack of EOD. EOD is kind of an exclusive group Mm -hmm. and they are highly trained to do what they do, but there's only so many of them. So then the rest of the IED mission, which has became prolific in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, a main way that they would kill us and wound us uh, that would fall on the engineers, which is, you know, really inc- incredible. So he would take it on his sapper missions. He took it on two tours over there. He flew it, uh, um, over Al-Assad air base on my birthday, actually. Told oh, that's me, awesome. Kind of, which is kind of cool. Um, I don't even know if I mentioned that in my story, in my piece, but no, you didn't. Cause I have it right here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that part you left yeah. out. <laughs> yeah. He told me that, you know, years later and we lost contact. We kind of had a little bit of a, a, a coming to head of things, whatever. Um, that's neither here nor there now, but I, but I didn't have it. He had it. And I was kind of wondering if I would ever get it back. And then I got it back. And this was around the 10 year anniversary of our reunion 
at Camp Pendleton, which is why I wanted it, right? I wanted to bring it back for that. Um, and that was a really powerful reunion to get to share that full story. I got to share it up at the crosses at Camp Pendleton for the first time for all the Lima guys that were there. And uh, that was a really, really powerful moment to get to do that. What were some of the things that they responded with when you had shared the story? Uh, they were pretty blown away. Um, there was also some gold star families there with us. Uh, and, and even since then at our 15 year reunion, I got to meet Lena Perry. She really wanted to hold the flag. I brought it to that reunion and take a picture with it. She is, looks just like her son. (laughs) They're like the spitting image and she's such a sweetheart. And, uh, you could just, they have that soft heart. Like, even though her son was rough and tough, uh, he was also a very kind, soft-hearted guy. And uh, there was just a lot of different reactions. Uh, Patrick O'Donnell, I think, was kind of blown away. He was like, hey, he's the one that was embedded with us who wrote the book, We Were One. Uh, he was like, you need to tell the story, Chad. You know, you, you really need to put pen to paper on this thing. And, and and keep this one going. Well, again, uh, I'm glad you did. Uh, it's powerful. It's personal. Um, and it, uh, you know, it's symbolic. And, and now it's taken on such a deeper meaning, right? I mean, now it, what started as a fairly innocuous, you know, sort of uh, conversation between you and your grandfather with the, with the hopes that one day the flag would be passed on in some sort of, you know, father to son moment uh, for you now takes on so much more significance um, than you could have ever imagined. Where is the flag now? You still have it? It's actually right behind me on my couch. Oh, okay. I, I pulled it out for this. Yeah, awesome. I usually I usually keep it folded up, you know, and protected. I've been bringing it to the reunions just so the guys can see it and ha- have it around. Would, would you I mind thought... showing it to the people who are watching? We have audio and video on the podcast, sure. but yeah, I mean, yeah. I'd love to see it real quick. Go grab it, and I'll, yeah. t- I'll talk while you're, while you're walking away here just right. to, yeah, sounds to good. kill time. Um but yeah, and, and again, if you guys want to read more of Chad's story, it's on Task and Purpose. If you just Google Chad Russell on Task and Purpose, you'll see it. And then for those watching on our YouTube channel, yeah, you can see the flag right there. I mean, it's gorgeous, man. That is. Let's do this. Ah, oh, that's beautiful. I'll just do this. Perfect. So, in all seriousness, you throw that flag over your shoulder like you just have now. It's it's draped mm-hmm. over you like a cape. What do you feel? I feel like I have a lot better understanding of what it represents to me now that I've got out and I've done the deep dive and studied what this flag means and why it was created the way that it was. And, you know, it represents the values of our nation. It represents our three founding documents, our declaration of independence, our uh, bill of rights, especially uh, in our constitution. And, you know, what does it mean to be American? Uh, you know, I think you can boil it down to a few words. It's to be American is about the presumption of Liberty, individual Liberty Mm -hmm. and fighting for that for individuals and striving for equal justice. We know that fairness is (laughs) an equality. These terms are probably myths, you know, that don't really exist in reality, we can argue about what those things mean till the end of time. But what's significant about our experiment in liberty is that we strive for that. We come together from all these different walks of life. We set 
partisan politics aside in the military, we link arms and we're willing to, to die for this thing. And that's what bowling died for. That's what in my, in, at least in my mind, I, you know, uh, uh, one of our Marines talked about, you know, uh, does he have an opinion about the geopolitical outcome in the war? Sure. But, you know, and, and what, what, how do you win a war? It's like, we didn't train for that. We trained to win fights. And, and that's what we know how to do really well. And wars are won by winning battles. But we can argue about that till the end of the time. But what I think what brings us back to, to true north is the, the, that value of the presumption of liberty, the value of fighting for equal justice under the law. So we don't have this chaos, you know, and protecting those things. And what does that mean? And, and that's where it gets a little disheartening for me when I look at the, 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 the state of things, the state sure. of yeah. how people just, they kind of skip over the history of it, you know? And that's what, what this is. You know, so many people have died for striving for equal justice under the law. And what does that mean? Well, it means protecting these rights. It means... <laughs> I'm willing to die for your bill of rights. Are you willing to die for mine? You know, and that's the question that I kind of boil it down to. That's what it means to me. And I, I don't know if that's true for a lot of people. And I think we need to get back to that because those bill of rights, those 10 amendments, they're, they're really quintessential American liberties that are unique to the rest of the world that sets us apart, that has led to all the prosperity that we have. Now we can argue about some of these other things, but really the natural law and the, the theory that our flag represents is what it is really all about at the end of the day. So yeah, for I me, mean, yeah. that's where I kind of put my exclamation point on it. Hard to see all the good in America when all you're focused on is the bad. That's for, that's for darn sure. Um, you know, right. It's a perception. It's a mindset. Uh, and, and fortunately or unfortunately, and, in certain cases, unfortunately, just because we have, it's coming a great loss to a lot of us personally, you know, um, our perspective on what's good about America is worth fighting and dying for, uh, which is why we all signed up to a certain extent, whether we acknowledge it or not at the time, it's part of what we rose our right hand to do. And, you know, uh, yeah. And when the rest of the world needs help, who do they come ask for help? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> right. So yeah. it's like, we got to remember that because, President Reagan was right. You know, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on in the bloodstream. So we have to foster it in our youth and we need to preserve and protect and perpetuate it. And we can't just get complacent. You know, the Mm -hmm. term over when we were in Iraq that was written everywhere was complacency kills. Well, that's true in our personal life. Yep. hundred percent. Um, your grandfather originally told you that he wanted his grandson to have that flag. Does you have children? I assume I have a son have who a I son. named after that grandfather. That's right. You mentioned so that before. I apologize. So I have a Sonny. I have a yes. little Sonny. Yeah. Okay. So does Sonny know what the flag is all about? I've explained a lot to him about it. Um, you know, I'm a dad that was singing him the Marines hymn when he was a little boy. So he actually knows all. He's almost eight years old and he knows all three verses and he won't let you sing it without all three verses. Yeah. Okay. Got um, it. You know, I try to foster that in him. I, I took him, I got him dressed up in a, in a suit and bow tie. He looked like 007 Sonny. 
for the Marine <laughs> ball this year. He was, he was on point, man. And uh, he was, he enjoyed the Marine ball so much. And it's important to me to foster that and I'm not shove it down his throat, but mm-hmm. you know, I expose him to the different opportunities. Right. Does he ask daddy what goes up, what went on the war? He doesn't, you know, he's actually uh, quite an autistic kid. So he struggles a little bit with gotcha. um, verbal communication, but he's really talented with music and different things. And yeah. it's caused me to be a more patient, and empathetic person to learn how to meet him where he's at, you know? So that's right. been a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> so. You know, it's uh, my, my, my twins are seven and, you know, even they start, they're at that age now where they're starting to ask l- random questions, you know, about the war and everything else. And, you know, some days I'll even forget, wait, daddy, you were in Iraq. Yeah, I was in Iraq twice, you know? And, uh, so, you know, it's, um, it's a difficult question for a father to ask, uh, to answer for their son, especially at that age, given everything that you had, had gone through. It's, it, I'm, I'm sure one day you'll have the conversation as will I, as will a lot of parents. And, uh, you know, um, I, I just, you know, I don't even, so I, I haven't prepared perceptive. myself for what I'm going to say. Yeah. You know, I've been invited to speak to a couple elementary schools from mm-hmm. different, you know, teachers that I grew up with who are now teaching these young inquisitive kids there, uh, or, you know, they've written letters to me on Christmas before different things. Sure. Yeah. And, uh, some of the questions are pretty dang direct and that kids say the darndest things right isn't that a tv show or something like yeah that? and i think you just kind of try to frame it in where they're at and yeah i'm proud of what we did you know i i am proud regardless of what the opinion is long term of the whole war and everything and this tribal thing trying to put democracy in a muslim dominated uh part of the world uh, that's so tribal uh it's just, I'm proud of what we did, what we went there to do. We we did the best that we could with what we were asked to do. It was so different for even each unit yeah. in that war. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like each commander was fighting maybe a different war even. Well, that's um, why, again, a good friend of mine, a former guest on his podcast would say, we didn't fight a 20-year war. We fought 21-year wars. Right? Right. And that's, yeah, that's 100% be, yeah, true. Yeah, exactly. Totally. Yeah. Cause when you leave there, you build these bonds with these people who actually decided, Hey, we're going to help you, mm-hmm. but we, we want some, we're going to put skin in the game. We're going to help protect your guys, but we want some to scratch our back a little bit too. And you know, by the end of it that you're leaving and you can't promise them anything really, you know? So you kind of find yourself in this general Mattis moment where you're like, Hey, if I, if my word's not good, then I, then I don't really have much to offer anymore. Right. And that's a tough place to be, but that's the reality of what we faced. But I think, you know, we did a lot of good there uh, and we did the best that we could with what we were asked to do. And I'm proud of our actions there. You spent nearly three years of a four and a half year Marine career deployed. Um, What was the, the catalyst for you calling it quits and getting out? You know, I value my liberty a lot. My, individual autonomy and wanting to self-direct my life. I also wanted to have a family. Mm-hmm. I know family life is tough and I highly respect the people that can do it and make it happen, but the statistics don't lie. It's pretty rare that it works out. Most guys that are career, multiple divorces or, yeah. you know, just their, their kids struggle 
but it's not true for all. I've got some really great friends who they lasted and they have incredible marriages, but they're the outliers. And I wanted that. And I, I just wanted to pursue other things. And um, I'm, I'm glad to be, be doing that now. I've, I've had built a career in sales. I was in medical sales for the better part of a decade in pre-hospital medicine. Never thought I would be in that, but I've, I've actually really loved it. And now I'm working in the firearms industry. So I'm back to gun shows. <laughs> right back where granddad you know? wanted, right back where granddad wanted you, right? <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So it's kind of an interesting evolution. You, you mentioned the, the post-traumatic growth, uh, your process. Um, obviously there's still things that'll keep you up at night, you know, not literally, but you know what I mean? I mean, there are things, even if it yeah. is literal, but there, there are things that still, stick with you. And, you know, I mean, I, I've, I've only recently opened my own Pandora's box and it took me about 15 years to get there. So good where, for you, man. Where are you? Yeah. I mean, listen, it's, uh, it's weird e- ever since I did it, I, you know, the more people I talk to, people always ask me like, how are you with PTSD? And it's like, Oh, that's a question you ask people now. <laughs> it's like, yeah, hey, see, uh, I don't even like to mention the D I hate, I hate, the I get D. it. But yeah, I, I just, PTS, I, you know, yeah. yeah, it's fine. But it's just like, I, I didn't know that that was like a, a common question. Hey, how's family? How's the kids? How's your PTS doing these days? It's great. Yeah. Do all want my IBS and my ABC and the IRS. Um, but no, That's I mean, hilarious. so where are you in your, in your, in your journey with all this? Yeah. So <clears throat> I did a deep dive after I got out. I was the typical young guy. Don't need your help. Fuck off. I'm going to, I'm going to self-medicate with alcohol. It was a typical thing that I turned to. And I just had all this energy that I didn't know what to do with. I didn't know what to do with the loss. I didn't know what to do with the survivor's guilt. I didn't know what to do with the anger. I didn't know what to do with being away from my tribe, this brotherhood that I built, like this closeness and a mission focus. That's what the problem was for me. I boiled it down to that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I plugged into counseling in the VA and I met this amazing woman, Allison Perry. She would probably be a wonderful guest to have on your show. She, um, her brother flew Apaches in the invasion and then medevac uh, uh, in Iraq as well. And she just had this heart. She wasn't an institutional person. I could tell she had all these amazing relationships with these salty combat vets from Vietnam and Korea. And I attended this, this PTS group that was suggested to me. And I saw how much they loved her. And then I seeked her out afterwards for individual counseling. And she really helped change my life. And I could tell that she just hated the institution of the VA. And so she started the Central Oregon Veterans Ranch. And we just became really good friends. And she created a a non-clinical model to heal, to create a space for peer-to-peer healing. And I didn't get too involved with her ranch. I just was always supportive of her idea that she shared with me as a vision when I was in counseling with her. But man, the tools that I learned there just really helped uh, me get a hold of my life and learn how to uh, operate that regulator on my pressure cooker. That's how I felt. I was like the walking pressure cooker, man. And I was just steaming all the time. And I didn't know the, I didn't know how to regulate it. And that's what the mental health journey helped me do was figure out how to regulate it, be aware of it. It made me a much more empathetic person. Uh, It made me, a much more aware person and I'm a much happier person because of it. So 
those moments where Corporal Bowling sneaks into your mind, uh, especially the ones where you're not ready for him to sneak into your mind, uh, what do you do with those? How do you handle them? You know, I used to try to like hold back the tears, but I was even, I, even before I jumped on this, just to kind of refresh my brain, I don't read the story too many times, but I read it this morning and I even, I cried before I got on here. It just, that, that was an example of the exact question you just asked. It's, it sneaks up on you. And even though I know I'm doing the podcast, I know I'm reading it. it, There's something about it. That's, that's so powerful that imprinted on me on my brain so deeply that I just let it, I let it go. You know, I learned that I own the tears. They're mine and it's okay. And it's a part of my healing process. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing disordered about it. That's why I hate the PTSD part. It's like, it was what I experienced was a normal reaction to what I experienced. And that's exactly what post-traumatic stress is. And so for me, it's about growth. It's that post-traumatic growth. And sometimes it's tough in certain aspects, but I just try to shift my context, you know, and then, then I'm able to shift my narrative a little bit in my mind and remind myself and just become more self-aware of where I'm at and what I'm, what I'm doing. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's still hard. Sometimes it feels like yesterday. Some, sometimes it, it, yeah, you just, you start to ask yourself the questions again, like, how did I not get hit? You know, (laughs) how did Matt Sandy, he'll never walk the same again. He was standing right next to me. You know, how, how does that happen? How do I have shrap metal in my jacket and holes in my camis, but I was never touched, you know, but he has metal in him still to this day in his legs and all this stuff. And it's like, you just start at, why did Sean pass away from stepping on an IED on that last deployment after being this decorated guy who did incredible things in the city of Fallujah, you know, it's like you start asking yourself, but then I just stop myself. It's, it's, it's pure luck at the end of the day. Yep. It's just, it, that's all so, it boils down to. I'm just lucky, man. You could do everything right and still get hit and you can do everything wrong and not get touched. Yeah. I mean, we joke about the slow movers award. I mean, I don't want one of those things, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, uh, it's a real humbling thing. I mean, there's just so many people to mention <laughs> from that, especially from our battalion, the small, the rocket guys that the Marine Corps doesn't even have the three fifty ones anymore. I don't think, but um, they saved so many lives from softening houses from rockets before. I mean, we developed our TTPs in that city. We used Israeli D nine bulldozers to bulldoze down houses. I think Willie got, got checked from the general stop bulldozing houses. But it was like, for him, it was about protecting and saving as many lives, you know, and that's what it's about at the end of the day. And that's where your focus goes. And that's why the flag went out of my mind. But the beauty of it is that it can come back and it can make meaning so important. And I think that's what's so important about telling the story and why I study history and why I think it's important to know what these men and women have done for, for people that they've never met, you know, and hopefully those people, if they get to hear these podcasts and they should listen to so many of the awesome ones that you have, 
hopefully that's something that they come away with, even if they feel like they can't connect with the civilian, that civilian military combat divide. It's like, yeah, but you're a part of it too. So you need to take up your portion of that and not forget what the flag represents, what those values represents. And you need to fight for those values too. You need to fight for that individual liberty and those bill of rights and those things. Would Corporal Bowling still be in today if he, uh, if he had survived? I don't think so. I think he was wanting to go back to Florida and he had business aspirations and things that he talked about doing when he was there with his buddies, you know, smoking and joking and shooting the shit and Abu Ghraib prison in the senior Marine cell that us junior Marines weren't allowed in. Uh, but he, I, I think he probably would have got out, but he was successful and probably would have been successful at whatever he did. What do you miss the most about the Marine Corps? I miss doing my job and the brotherhood. The, for lack of actual blood cells, we become brothers. Like it's hard to quantify it. It's this challenge of wanting to earn your place, you know, that nothing's given and you have to earn your place amongst your peers. And once you make that leap, and you earn their respect and you know you have it, you know, um, it just gives you this feeling of pride that I don't, it's really hard to derive it from anywhere else. And I think that's what we struggle with when we come home. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know? For you, does, does that, that, those feelings you just talked about, does that outweigh the loss that you experience and the pain that you have? Like, you know, in short order, would you do it all again, knowing what you know now? A hundred percent. Absolutely. I I would. I mean, that's a hard, that's a hard question to answer, especially if you're looking in the eyes of a gold star mother. Yeah. I mean, let's be real about it. But at the end of the day, we did join during wartime footing. Mm -hmm. Many of us knew that we would possibly go into harm's way, especially joining the Marines and the mission of the Marine rifle squad. And, you know, it just boiled down to luck at the end of the day. We're just could have zigged when we could have zagged or whatever. And it's just the the cards are where they are. But yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't have these deep level relationships that I have with these men who are incredible individuals, you know, I'm super close with Colonel Buell, with Willie, super close with Sergeant Major Sachs, Ed. I'm I'm super close with Sergeant Major Wilson, Dave, you know, um, and, you know, Dave gave an amazing speech at our 15-year reunion. It was interesting. No officers were there, but it was like all these senior enlisted guys showed up. Um, you know, it's whatever. It's not, neither here nor there. That It's just what who was able to make it. Sometimes it's just logistics, whatever. But he gave this amazing keynote from the heart, and he coined it Lima Love. Lima company love. He was our company gunny. You know, we had um, something that didn't make it in the book, but I think it's something that needs to be told that he had quite a challenge on his hand. You know, we had a Captain Sobel moment in uh, Lima company. Willie had to relieve our CEO because he was just terrible. I was young Marine, didn't know what was going on, but now I know the full story. And it's like he had to basically get all the senior NCOs on the same page to say, 
officers don't like to ruin each other's careers. And it was an unpopular choice, but it was the right choice because of where we were going. They knew that we were going to Fallujah into harm's way. They knew that we needed the best and the brightest leading us. And thank God, Captain Heatherman came in. They call him Shark Man. (laughs) But it was like this paradigm shift of this guy that doesn't really look like a Marine, who's not acting like a Marine, doing things that most of us didn't have any idea what was going on of the shitbaggery that was happening. Um, But Dave did. Sergeant Major Wilson did. And uh, he, he made a conscious decision to make sure that the word got out about it. And basically the senior NCOs mutinied against the CO and there was a changing of command. And it was like, when Heatherman showed up, it was like, this guy is chiseled. He's freaking looks the part. Right. And was, and was down to fight, you know, and it just changed the mentality of Lima company. It just gave us this boost of energy and arm that we really needed. And uh, those, those types of things, are really important because that's really good leadership. And thank God, Colonel Buell just saw what he, what Dave saw, or Gunny Wilson at the time, and made those changes because uh, it saved a lot of lives, in my opinion, because it boils down to discipline and courage and raw, just gritty. You fall back on your training, but you also get to that point where you're like, this is kill or be killed, and we got to get wild and wooly and roll up our sleeves and rock and roll. You Just know what be I mean? Marines. Be freaking Marines, man. Violence of action, baby. That's what we're good at. Yeah. Um, you know, it's amazing. Uh, you speak with such passion and such energy about, you know, your experience. And yet there's a certain, I don't want, I want to choose the right word. Melancholy is, I, I guess is where I am, but there's a, there's a certain, you know, sort of, uh, downtroddenness in your voice about, you know, the cost that all this has come at, um, Mm -hmm. you know, are there moments where you feel like the cost is too much? No, I don't, you know, because I look at my son, um, I look at his future and I think if we don't step up and answer the call, The post 9-11 generation, Willie talked about it in the speech he gave, you know, we, we have, have fought the longest war to date, you know, and we did answer the call. So a lot of people like to cherry pick the generations or pick on them, the greatest generation, but we're, we're the greatest of our generation because I don't say that in an arrogant way. I say that because we answered the call of what our country asked us to do. Mm -hmm. And we did it to the very best of our ability. Now, I'm not comparing us to the greatest generation either. You know, I've met those men. Yes. And I've spent hours with some of them who fought in the Pacific and different things before they passed away. Absolutely blown away by what they did. But I'm absolutely blown away by my peers and some of the things that I saw. So this story is a direct thing that happened to me firsthand but it's not about me. It's about us. And it's about a bigger picture. And I think that's the meaning that as I've thought about it over the years that I want to punctuate through to people is what does it mean to be American? Like 
what does individual liberty mean? What does that mean? What is the presumption of liberty? What this concept that the French came over and helped us secure, you know, back in the day that saw this uh, experiment we were in where our founding fathers gave up literally everything. And that's what's so significant about them. And they drew that line in the sand and said, we are willing to give it all for this. And it's morphed into different things and it's gotten so complex, but I think we just need to get back to basics of individual liberty, protecting the bill of rights Mm -hmm. and realize that if we don't, we're setting our future generations up to lose it Yeah, because that's what will happen. There's a, there's a war going on in Eastern Europe, like a modern day war, you know? I'm not here to add any opinions on that. I'm just here to say that I find it baffling that people are totally fine with us sending all kinds of weapons over there. But back here, they want to strip liberties from people that are enshrined in our Bill of Rights. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. Zero. Um, But it's because of complacency and laziness. And they think that, oh, this liberty that we have and that I grew up with will be here forever. And it's like, no. That's not true. Reagan's words are true, that it's never more than one generation away from extinction. And I think for me, it's the cost is worth it. And independence, the natural law, everything that we hold dear needs to be protected and preserved and perpetuated. 100%. I mean, you know, again, uh, it's, you don't hear a lot of non-military folks talk this way. You hear politicians talk that way, but it's for a different reason. Um, Right. But I think average civilians don't express a lot of these emotions. I'm not saying that across the board, but I just, you know, it's not a conversation that two civilians are having at the water cooler uh, at a break at work uh, over the... No, they've they've lost the art of it. That's the part of the problem that's created this chasm you know it's like what did or thomas jefferson talked about you know i never let my opinion of religion and politics come between me and a friend and people have just gotten so polarizing versus just you know if you're going to be inclusive and liberal then be inclusive and liberal and listen to one another and you don't have to agree with anything that i say but at least respect my right to say it. Well, Don't try to silence me. It's what you said before about you. It's empathy. And that's what this country is severely lacking at this point in time. Um, Absolutely. And even in 100%. our military, I've had this conversation. We need more empathetic leaders now than ever. Than ever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not only question, because, questioning things. Not yeah. only because of the simple idea that we've been through more now than we ever have in the last 20 years, but as a generation of individuals who, who are – coming up who grew up in a completely different existence than a lot of us did. Uh, They have instant gratification at their fingertips and everything else. And if you try to shove a square peg in a round hole with them, all you're going to do is be met with resistance. Uh, And and empathy is meant to meet them on their level a little bit. And we don't think that way in a rank structured organization. Mm -hmm. But if if, if you'd like to truly motivate people and lead, you better start being a little bit more empathetic. 100%. And you know, that's how I've been able to develop incredible relationships with people on all different sides of Mm -hmm. the political aisle. And I take pride in that. You know, I, 
the quote that changed my life was that Thomas Jefferson quote, and it's a paraphr- it's a paraphrasing it, but he talked about, he's writing a, a letter to Peter Carr. He's mentoring this guy. And he taught, and he says, you know, Peter question with boldness, even the very existence of God for, if there be a God, he much rather honest questioning over blindfolded fear. And here's a man who cared deeply about individual liberty, right? Who penned our declaration of independence and was a man way beyond his years, a young man who did incredible things. And I think we just have to get back to asking questions and not just going along because authority says it, you know, that's the, the American, that's the American way. And practicing that empathy, bringing that into the conversation, my, my thing has become appealing to one another's humanity first. If I can do that, then I can pretty much hear any opinion, even if I don't agree with it, I could vehemently disagree with it. But that is a, that's being American to me. And I, all I ask from others and challenge others to do is extend that to other people. So that way we can be better together. You know, e pluribus unum is on our coins. We don't even think about it. Of many, we are one. You know, and that is so true. Um, and just getting back to that. Well, you know, getting back to that empathy. Again, uh, your pride, your passion, your patriotism are all on full display. Um, and it, it's, it's great getting to hear it. It's refreshing. Uh, and it comes from a place that, you know, uh, I am, I am certain after hearing this story um, that is rooted well beyond just a personal experience, it's connection to others, it's connection to the service, it's connection to family and, and you know, values and roots that this country was founded on. And so, you know, I, I, I love hearing you speak that way and I love hearing you uh, send that out into the world and send that message out into the world. And I love seeing that flag draped over your shoulders and I want you to continue to share this story. And when you go Me back too, for, man. for your 20 year reunion, I want you to go back and share it with more people. Um, because it, it just, it brings in so much of what a life of service is about. Uh, and even something as small and really insignificant. I mean, the flag is not insignificant, but any token someone gives you, you know, that, that can easily be replaced. Um, the fact that you, you, you've made sure that it has become this symbolic thing for so many people to rally around and be part of and connect, even those who are gone, uh, stands for so much more. And so I, I certainly appreciate all of that. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. This has been wonderful. And man, I love, I love this country. And if I need to die for it, I will, you know, and I know that that's true for you. And the other men and women that come on this podcast too. And that's, that's an amazing, amazing thing. It certainly is. Again, thank you so much for your honesty, your emotion, your candor, and and just sharing this story. Chad Russell, thank you so much for being part of the hazard ground. You've been listening to the hazard ground podcast hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.